Benjamins, baby. Uh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Quiet. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Hello, Fintech Beat listeners. I'm Amias Garrity, partner at QED Investors, and I'm back again to talk about the long, strange trip, the paradigm shift that has defined financial markets over the last two years. As we wrap up 2022, it's a good time to reflect on just how different Fintech was this year from last. You'd have to have been living under a rock not to notice that markets are down, but that, unfortunately, would still understate how rough markets have been for tech this year. Things are so bad that the top quartile performers, the best companies, are down 50% from their highs. My favorite data to track these trends are put out weekly by Morgan Stanley. And though I'm aware that podcasting is not a visual medium, so we won't talk through the slick charts that they put together, I'm pleased today to be joined by Jigger Patel, the head of fintech investment banking at Morgan Stanley, to talk about what the markets think about fintech these days. Jigger has spent his career in investment banking. After starting as an engineer, he was, by his own self-assessment, not good enough to make his career in tech that way. So he came to Wall Street in 2008, where he worked at Lehman Brothers just as the wheels came off. We won't get to all the great stories in his career, from helping Capital One buy ING Direct to helping the Ricketts family buy the Cubs, but I will note one that's near and dear to our hearts at QED. Jigger helped Morgan Stanley's role in the IPO of Brazil's largest fintech, Nubank, by learning and then delivering his pitch in Portuguese. Thanks, Jigger, for joining us, and welcome to the show. Great. Thanks, Amaya, for having me. Glad to be on, and it was quite an intro, so hopefully I can live up to that in this podcast. Yeah, so today I want to start talking about IPOs. I mean, these are watershed moments for startups. They're big media days, founder profiles that get to ring the bell. But IPOs are also just a question of the company's development. When are you ready to go public? And a question about market timing. When is a good time to sell shares? So, uh, Jigger, when is the right time for a company to IPO? Yeah, so actually, uh, I have a question back to you. What is an IPO? <laughs> <laughs> if, yeah, if, we haven't seen one in a while. Uh, totally. And, you know, you started off by saying if you, you know, were living under a rock, you wouldn't know what's going on in fintech and in the markets. I mean, literally in 2022, you haven't seen an IPO, um, you know, up until of late. There was a stat that, you know, we tracked and we put out that um, in it's been 273 days since an IPO happened. And that 273 days was like the longest stretch of not having a tech IPO. And that is longer than the dot-com bubble, longer than the great financial crisis. So, you know, pretty much for all of 2022, people had not really heard the term IPO. And so your question on, you know, when's a good time to IPO? Look, I'll tell you, there's never a perfect time to IPO, sell shares in a company. Um, if you think about it, when the markets are really popping and hot, like in 2021, uh, and you are really at peak valuation multiples, uh, it seems like a great time to IPO. But guess what? Usually when you're at those peaks, there's only one way to go, which is down. So if you were a company that had IPO'd in 2020, 2021, 
and you're sitting here today, your last 12 months, the performance, no matter which way you cut it, is just ugly, right? I mean, you're down 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90% in some cases. And it's demoralizing. It's demoralizing for investors. It's demoralizing for the company. It's demoralizing for employees. So you got to just think about the toll, the human toll, right, that that takes on someone's uh, psyche. Uh, but then if you go on the other side of it, if you try to IPO when the markets aren't hot, you'll often have early investors or founders say, well, do I want to IPO? The markets aren't great. Like the valuation's not that great. Do I really want to dilute my ownership in the company? Does it make sense? Does it make, uh, you know, does it not make sense? Um, so it's, it's a good way of saying, look, there's never a perfect time to IPO. I think the a company has to go when it's ready to go. And that can mean a lot of things. Uh, the other thing on the IPO, I think a lot of people forget about are lockups, right? It's a word that's, it's, that not a lot of people pay attention to, but in most cases, people think, uh-huh, the company rang the bell, boom, they're off to the races. But, um, in most cases, right, 90 to 180 days after the actual IPO, is when management employees and some of the early investors can actually begin selling shares. And so, you know, the IPO seems like a great moment, but a lot of the action is until 90 to 100 days afterwards. In other words, the, the IPO price of that initial public offering, that's not the price that management or early investors actually get to realize. They get to realize the price on, a, call it a random Tuesday, six months later. Yeah, random Tuesday, random day after earnings, right? I mean, you, the, the random is pre-selected, but yeah, yeah on, on, you could refer to it as like a random weekday, uh, six months later, in some cases, 12 months later. And look, in 2021, many of the companies were fortunate that the IPOs were just going up and up and up. But, you know, I mean, it's very hard to predict what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone next week. So it's hard to predict what's going to happen six to nine months after an IPO. And how should founders, investors, observers think about that repricing? Was it irrational exuberance, to use the term from the dot-com time? Or was it as simple as, as rising interest rates drive down the valuations of, of growth stocks? So I, I think it has to do with both. I mean, look, it's hard to say, uh, or it's hard to completely dismiss that there wasn't some FOMO or rational exuberance built into it. There was. I mean, you you know, everybody saw it when companies would IPO and like this was the price. But then on the first day of trading, you're watching CNBC and the stock is up 100%. So, you know, it, it does feed into there is FOMO, there is rational, you know, some irrational exuberance built into that. Um, so that led to a lot of the pop in 2021. And then consequently, you saw the exact opposite in 2022, which, you know, a lot of people talk about rising rates. I think that is the underpinning of all of this or a lot of this, but it's not the only reason why you're seeing everything that's going on in 2022. Yeah. So I, I like to call sort of the, the, the idea of my mom into this conversation because, you know, she's a, a psychologist. She does not think very much about financial markets, but, you know, she listens to NPR in the evenings and she always asks me, Amias, when the news says, well, markets are up because of blank or down because of blank, what do they mean? I mean, they don't just go out and talk to people. Like markets are thousands, millions of people. So, Jigger, when, when you think about, you know, I ask you a question like, what's going on in markets? How do we even know what's going on in markets? Yeah, look, it, it, it's a great question. I mean, you know, for the common person who's not living and breathing this all day long, they hear the word markets. They're like, who's the market, right? Who is that person? Who is that? Yeah, who is it? That entity? <laughs> uh, and the, the, the short answer of it is, 
it's it's all of us, right? It, it, it is literally all of us. So it's everything from CNBC to Wall Street Journal to Bloomberg to it could be you know the random cab driver talking about SPACs, right? It, it, it is all of us or the water cooler talk uh, that you'll have around the office, like oh think about this stock, think about that stock. It, it is it is literally all of us. So I like to think you know when when we and others say the market's doing this, the market's worried about that. It is a lot of noise. It is a lot of opinions. Ultimately, it's group thinking, consensus thinking is, is what the market is. Yeah. And, and the consensus is, is pretty down. I mean, one of the stats which you guys put together and track is how have tech stocks traded since IPO? And I'll give this to you, but, but my understanding is that only one of them out of you know, 124 that you track is currently trading at a higher price than, than its IPO price. So, so the consensus is pretty different than it was a year ago or, or, or 18 months ago. Yeah, that's a hundred percent right. And I think, you know, even, uh, that stat is a great stat. And, you know, every day we watch that stat, it was, I think at some point it was like 20 or trading above IPO price. And then it was like five and then four. So that stat maybe zero pretty soon. It's dwindling pretty quickly. Uh, the sentiment is completely different in 2022. And I know, you know, look, we'll go back to your reference on the market, right? The market right now is worried about a lot of things. And that's what's driving a lot of the sentiment and driving stock prices down. Um, you know, the market's worried about interest rates going up, worried about inflation, worried about a credit crunch or a recession, worried about what's going on with Russia and Ukraine, worried about what's going on with China, all the supply chain factors. There's just so many things to worry about that it's very hard for, you know, for someone to sit back and say, here's some of the silver linings in the market. So right now, what you're seeing, and you saw this a lot uh, in, in the earnings, right, that companies have been putting out Q2, Q3 earnings is, it's just really sentiment driven. And, and more often than not, many of these companies are having to pull back guidance, pull back some of their numbers and provide weaker outlooks. And guess what? That's leading to a very negative sentiment. And so that's what's feeding through. So this, I think, is, it's worth peeling back this onion. You know, you just used a couple of words uh, that, that I think is worth unpacking for the audience here. So, you know, how do people think about forecasts? What is guidance? And then how, how do those things and the public communications that come with being a public company combine to form sentiment? So let's start with forecasts and guidance. Could you just unpack those things? How do those actually operate on a day-to-day basis on Wall Street? Yeah, sure. So when a, when a company comes to the public markets, I'll say usually, because not every company chooses to do so, when they're educating the research analysts, right, that are building the model and, and ultimately educating investors on the company and figuring out how to value a company, uh, many of these tech companies are still very early stage high growth, right? So they haven't achieved their full scale or full profitability. Um, or full margins yet. So what what companies will often do is they will provide guidance. What and what that basically means is, you know, at some point in the future, you could say two, three years down the road, they will provide you some ranges or numbers of our revenue growth will be X, our margins will be Y, our profitability will be Z. And it just gives a framework, a very high level framework for investors and analysts um, and just retail investors to think about, okay, what does this company look like when they're actually at a more mature stage a couple of years down the road, right? And I would say it's the company's best estimate. 
there's you know some conservatism built into that right because you don't want to go super optimistic and not deliver on it um so that effectively is what guidance is it, it, it's providing you some framework and range of what this company can look like in the future and this is why again just to go back to this the, the mindset of a, a person listening to the radio listening to the end of the day news reports and you'll often hear you know, such and such company missed guidance or missed earnings per share by one cent or two cents. And those seem like really small numbers. And yet they they also are reported as driving the markets up or driving the markets down. So is, is that really what's going on? Is the guidance of the best estimate? So the simple way of thinking about it is, did you do better than your guess or worse? And that becomes sentiment? It, it, it does become sentiment. I think look, the, a lot of the market is sentiment. Uh, but the the other thing that um, people often forget is the market is forward looking, right? It 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 it, it has always been forward looking, and so yes, they sound like small numbers where a company missed guidance by a penny there or a penny there or came in you know like a little bit lighter on revenue. Um, but what the market is actually interpreting from that is well, if they missed it by this much this quarter, well, what about next quarter and what about the year after that, right? And if you think about it, it is the company's best estimate, best guess, educated guess, whatever you want to call it. And if they were not able to hit that, then that just means your best guess, your best estimate, your best judgment a year or a quarter down the road is probably in question. And so, you know, the sentiment has been, well, everything should just be negative until you kind of earn that trust or earn that uh, that right back. Yeah. And I do, I, I think it's interesting that, even though many of these companies that have IP, you know, have IPO'd and have underperformed in terms of stock price have actually done pretty well in terms of growth or in terms of margin. And, and the sentiment remains negative because of the broader doubt. So even when a company performs, they can still be, quote unquote, hammered by the market. Again, just to use the, the, the news hook of, oh, you know, markets were hammered today by Blanker. Right. And, and I think a lot of that is, look, markets change. People's minds change, right? And if you were in 2021, the big buzzwords were e-commerce, digital payments, growth, growth, growth. And now the big buzzwords are profitability, 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 right? So it's just world, one word. It, it, well, it, it gets repeated many times, right? So as, as people's and, and investors kind of mindset shifts, companies are trying to adapt too. So where, you know, they were driving towards one goal, you know, growth at all costs last year. Now it's become, well, we want to grow, but we want to grow profitably and we want to grow sustainably and durably. So I, I think part of that has to do with just how the mind uh, mindset for investors has shifted. I mentioned you guys do a ton of analysis. You've got, you know, hundreds and thousands of people looking at markets every day. Um, you've got a big team around you. What are some of your favorite statistics to track either week over week or month over month as you think about whether sentiment is too negative or whether it's going to turn? Um, what are the, the key things that, that you think about when you're analyzing markets? Yeah, look, I'm a data-driven guy. I, you know, I'm, I think I'm one of the rare breeds that, unlike most people in finance who carry around the HP-12C, I carry around the TI-89 graphing calculator. It goes back to my engineering roots. But so I love data. I love stats. I love numbers because they always tell a story. So I, I dig deep on the stats. And so like the stats I look at are 
the the first one, and I know it's a podcast, so I'll try to create the visual for the, for the audience, is the correlation of valuation and that correlation of valuation to growth and growth and margins. What that basically means is you're looking at companies, how they were valued in one period of time and were they valued more based on growth or more based on just growth and margins together. Um, and it, when you look at this chart, it's fascinating. What it showed was, again, it's, it's all backward looking, it, between 2016 and 2021, the correlation or the R squared for companies that achieved higher growth and having a higher valuation was really high. Right. So in other words, if you had high growth, your valuation would be high, irrespective of anything else going on. Margins, profitability, it didn't matter. Profitability, exactly. And that was right. the It used to be that if you knew one number, you wanted to know the growth number. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and you know, oftentimes when you speak with founders and management teams and they're, you know, speaking in front of investors or others, they would quote stats, oh, we grow 100% year over year, right? They would always quote the growth stats. And so from 2016 to 2021, that line just became higher and higher and higher, and it was growth at all costs. And guess what? In 2022, it's the exact opposite. That line came plummeting down. And then now the correlation that's very high is the correlation of valuation to growth and margins, i.e. profitability. And so I love looking at a chart like that because when you just think about it in hindsight, you're like, huh, I can look at this chart and it literally predicted what the markets were doing, right? Or what the markets have done between 2016 and 2021 and what 2022 looked like. And that's why I like to look at this and say, uh, you know, markets, a lot of it is all about timing. Most people just don't have the patience, right? To kind of sit it out and wait, and wait that out. Because at some point, someone would have said, oh, profitability is going to matter. You just didn't know when. Right. I, and I like the idea of, you know, I know it's it's complicated for most people to think, okay, well, there's a line on the chart. The, the line goes up, right? Up and to the right. That's what people like. And yet um, what you're saying is that for you as an analyst, you want to track the correlation. You want to track when are the forces or what are the forces that are driving that that number? And, uh, and I think what you've just described is this idea of a paradigm shift. I know that's an overused cliched term, but in one paradigm, we had growth at all costs. And in the current day, people care about what Econ 101 says they should care about, which is, you know, equity prices should reflect my expectations about profit making in the company. Exactly. And, and look, all of this kind of ties back into rates and where we are in a cycle, but, but that is exactly right. So that I know I t it's a long winded way of saying that is like my favorite stat, first favorite stat. Well, I, I love it. You know, you, you've got I, I think sometimes people think of Wall Street as like, you know, uh, the wolf in Wall Street, like Leonardo DiCaprio. But in fact, you know, it's people like you geeking out on on like correlation matrices. Yeah, look, I mean, uh, but w w we're not, uh, you know, we're not immune from uh, sometimes kind of buying into the FOMO, buying into the irrational exuberance too, right? Because at the end of the day, we are commercial as well. But uh, it, 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 it's kind of data like that that I love looking at. The Some of the other data I look at, and, and this is in our weekly packs and monthly packs, is average multiples. And, you know, in different times, people use different multiples. It could be 
a revenue multiple, a gross profit multiple, an EBITDA multiple, an earnings multiple. But when you look at multiples over time, five years, 10 years, there's always a reversion to the mean. It's like a bell curve, right? And for the longest time, no matter what multiple you were looking at in the last five, six years up until this year, we were sitting on like that fat, you know, long tail of the curve, uh, which was really out into the right. And now the bell curve, we're moving back to the bell curve reversion to the mean, right? Which is where multiples have been over five to 10 years. When I think about this, I think about sometimes, you know, just you know, reading the New York Times on Sunday and you'll see things like the Case-Shiller home price index or the price to earnings ratio. And, and these are the kinds of multiples that you're discussing here. Just over a long span of time, two numbers tend to, they can get out of whack, but they tend to come back. And those numbers sort of tend to define how companies get valued over a 10, 20, 30 year horizon. Right. And, and, and when you and look, will there be outliers? Of course, there always are. But when you, uh, you know, going back to the market comment, when you hear the market commentary, whether it's on CNBC or somewhere else saying, well, you know, the S&P 500 right now has a PE of Y, but historically it's been X and it's out of whack over time, that's the, the number should converge. And, 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 and so I, I love looking at historical multiples in time. Um, that's fascinating. The, my third set was actually, you mentioned it, the Case-Shiller Index, not also because I'm in the market trying to buy a home. That's why I like looking at that index. But I, I think, look, uh, watching this index and home price is fascinating because homes are usually some of the biggest assets for a consumer. They actually is one of the biggest asset classes in the U.S. And it, and it drives such a large part of the economy, right? In, in terms of you think about what it takes to build a home, sell a home, furnish a home, everything that goes around a home. It powers like a whole village of people. Describe what is the Case-Shiller Index and how has it become so important? Yeah, so the Case-Shiller Index, um, and hopefully I'm doing it justice here to Mr. Schiller, is it, it's, it's basically in, in certain markets, it is tracking the median or average home prices and how they're changing quarter to quarter or year over year. And when you look at it over long periods of time, whether it was in 2000 to 2008, all you saw was year over year, the price, the median price was going up and up and up and up. And guess what? Then you had the financial crisis or the housing crisis. And you would see in the data that the Case-Shiller Index turned negative. So year over year, house prices across different geographies were falling. And when I went back and looked at this data over the last few years, they've, you know, not as pronounced as 2000 to 2007, home prices were going up and up and up nearly across every geography or every major city or metropolitan area. And last quarter was the first time it actually fell. And so, you know, I view that as a bit of a leading indicator. And, and so when people are talking about, well, recession, you know, what's going to happen to the consumer, inflation coming down, house prices tend to drive a lot of this too. So the after effects of house prices starting to come down and drop is really going to be felt in the next few quarters, at least, you know, that's the way I view it. So I, I, I like to make sure, you know, when I go back and look at this um, data, it's not all just trading and market and valuation data. I do think you need to ground yourself in some macro data too. Yeah. In other words, to understand what's happening to companies, they do reflect the economy. And so you have to take a look, not just at technical factors, like what's driving valuation, but also macroeconomic factors, like just house prices. Are they going up or down and how will that affect consumer confidence? 
Let's shift a little bit to a little bit of a DC frame. So in DC, much of the discussion about IPOs is whether we should be easier to become a public company, whether there are things that DC can do to make, you know, give greater access to investing in these high growth companies. But at the same time, as we've just seen from 2021 to 2022, if you're investing in, you know, newly public companies, those are high risk and and the the markets can go down just as much as they can go up. How do you think those policy issues interplay with the markets realities of, of 2022? Yeah, look, at, at the end of the day, I, I view it as if you're talking about the CFPB, the SEC, and all the agencies that are, are really uh, focused on consumer protection, right? At the end of the day, like, okay, big institutional investors, they are supposedly the smart money, you know, they're qualified investors. They have teams of people that are able to make their own decisions and do their own diligence. These companies, I think, or, or these types of investors, the, the, the government and, and, and the regulatory bodies are okay kind of leaving them to their own devices, right? As long as they're playing by the rules. Um, what the regulatory bodies are really focused on is the mom and pop retail investor. Are they you know, getting the information they need? Are they getting to play by the same rules that a big institutional investor can play by? And at the same time, are they making it easy or easier for some of these startup companies to be able to go access public markets and go get some of these retail investors or just get outside capital markets investors? And there's a couple of things that have happened and, and I'll break it up into, look, when you think about the Jobs Act, right, which came in, in the kind of post financial crisis era, it, it allowed companies to stay private for longer. It allowed companies to come to markets a little bit easier where they didn't need full three years of audits. They could do two years of audits. They didn't need to be SOX or Sovereigns Oxley compliant day one, right? Which is a huge, uh, huge burden in, in terms of time, compliance, and money uh, for companies to be able to do that. Uh, companies were able to come public without those features necessarily day one. But at the same time, you know, you had things like the SPAC phenomena, which a lot of companies that went public via SPACs put out really high lofty valuations and multiples and crazy projections, right? And some of these were even concept companies. There was no actual product yet. And that's where, in hindsight, uh, a lot of investors you know, felt like they got burned and could the disclosure have been different. And so you have you know, the likes of the SEC and others going back and revisiting do SPACs have to be held to the same standards that are, as a traditional IPO? And it all goes back to, is there enough disclosure? Is there the right type of disclosure? And are there the same type of rules that the mom and pop retail investors get to play by? And as an investment banker leading companies through this process, you and your teams are actually pretty central to that question. So tell us a little bit more about what you do to educate companies, to press them, to make sure that they are you know, giving the right information and getting their own houses in order well enough to give that, mu- that information out to the public. Right. So when, when we as um, investment bankers and advisors do take on, let's just say, an IPO or, or a, um, a capital raise, we do have underwriting liability, right? So we have to make sure we're comfortable with it. So we're doing just as much diligence on the company as an outside investor, if not more, saying, do we understand the business? Do we understand what are the factors that are driving the parts of this business that you know make the revenue go up or down or make the margins go one way or another? 
so there's a lot of diligence that we do hands on, but then making sure that, you know, there's audits behind that. Um, there's ma making sure that the companies model their projections properly. The, uh, things like the S1 document, right? Which is the document that a company has to file with the SEC that gets made public that really provides a description of the company and the risk factors, right? Making sure the risk factors disclose, hey, here's all the ways that this company could be negatively impacted and it could affect the performance and i.e. the valuation of this company. So we work with companies behind the scenes and you know, this is all the lead up to the IPO, right? This is months and months of work between advisors, companies, underwriting counsel, company legal counsel, auditors, that all, that, that all kind of happens behind the scenes that the public necessarily doesn't always get to see that gets everyone comfortable with that this company is being represented to a new investor in the proper lens with the right disclosures that somebody can actually make a make a true assessment of the company. So as as we look forward, um, what are you watching to see? Uh, is this cycle, is this sentiment going to break to the upside or, or break to the downside? I assume over the long period of time, you know, just as you talked about the price earnings ratios going way up and then coming down, um, you could imagine the, the, the same process happening in reverse. So going back to the data, what are some of the indicators that you're looking for as we turn the calendar from 22 to 23? Yeah, so look, uh, one of the things I look at are investments, right? Uh, I track the VC, uh, uh, the, the venture capital investing uh, data pretty regularly, pretty frequently. And no surprise, it's come down. I think VC investments are down 50% year over year, if I had to put a stat out there. And I'm waiting for when you look in the data, when that uptick starts happening. I still think, by the way, we're going through a, um, you know, kind of taking your medicine and we're still in recovery mode. Um, many people talk about 2022 being a nightmare or a bit of a hangover that you're recovering from. And you're still seeing companies do layoffs. You're still seeing companies you know, cutting where they can. Uh, and un until you see that stopping and like the lifting of hiring freezes, I don't think it gives me enough confidence that we're on the other side of this yet. So those are like some of the soft things that I'm watching. Um, the, the other things I look at are just chatter in the industry, you know, when you're at conferences, talking to individuals, you know, are they excited about new companies? Are they looking to form a company, right? Is capital coming back in where, uh, you're going to have a whole new wave of tech startups and fintech startups. One of the things I, I always like to remind people is when you think about the dot-com bubble and how that burst and look at the companies that came out of that, I mean, you had Meta and Alphabet and some of these amazing companies that formed out of that. And then you look on the great financial crisis and on, you know, right after that, you had companies like Square and Uber and Shopify some of the iconic companies we look to now in tech and fintech being formed. And so I'm sure on the other side of this, you're going to have, you know, iconic companies that are in formation mode, stealth mode in the next year to two years. So that's the type of stuff I'm trying to keep a beat on. Excellent. Well, Jigger, thanks again so much for, for joining us and for sharing your, your data and your wisdom. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks Amaius, for having me and uh, hope everyone enjoys the uh, fintech weeklies and monthlies. <laughs>
But I think it's important to hear directly how quote unquote Wall Street thinks when they think about startups. Jigger's analysis helped remind me why the day-to-day churn of the markets can be hard to understand, but also why seemingly small things like a home price index can be related to the number of fintech founders who decide to take the leap into entrepreneurship. One amazing note that Jigger and I discussed after we finished taping is that the shadow of COVID is so large, we didn't even mention it in our discussion. It is, as they say in the old joke about the fish, simply the water we swim in. Nonetheless, it's an essential driver for fintech, e-commerce, interest rates, and, well, just about everything else. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.